So today we continue our series of studies, mostly in Luke's gospel, but several scripture passages that we're calling Meals with Jesus. For the past several weeks, we've seen that these meals are an important theme in Luke's gospel in particular, but throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's not just having dinner or lunch with people. He's communicating something about who he is and what he has come to do through these meals. We've been seeing all kinds of things about who he eats with, who he doesn't eat with, how he's welcomed or rejected into different homes by religious leaders or Pharisees of the day. Today's passage will be a unique passage in our study because there's actually not a meal that Jesus is having in the text, but rather it's a passage where he's alluding to or referring to a meal he's going to have. Most of the meals we've seen are actual historical accounts of Jesus reclining, sitting down at a table, sharing meals with sometimes sinners and sometimes Pharisees. The first meal we saw was him at a wedding and celebrating and changing the water into wine. But in this passage, we will see that Jesus is just making his way to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, there is a dividing point from the first half to the second half of the book. In chapter 9, it says that Jesus made his way to Jerusalem and he set his face, like he was determined that nothing was going to stop him. He had an agenda to get to Jerusalem while he was spending most of his time around Galilee prior to that point. So he was going to take a journey to Jerusalem, and here in chapter 13, he's still on his way. He's, he's not stopping for a meal at this point. He's just journeying on his way, it says in verse 22 of chapter 13, through towns and villages teaching and journeying. And then someone stops him and asks him a question. And what we're about to see is the way that Jesus answers this question is to refer to a meal that he's going to have and to a meal that I want to invite all of us to make sure that we are a part of enjoying and sitting down and celebrating with Jesus. As we read this passage, I want to get two kind of ideas in your head about what we can take away from it. Traditionally speaking, there have been some traditions and churches and pastors who have said, preaching should do two things. And those are the two things I want to try and do today. First, they should afflict the comfortable. And second, they should comfort the afflicted. So in terms of our outline and structure, I want us to first read through this passage, and I want us to see how this might afflict some of us who might be comfortable this morning. And then second, I'd like us to look through this same passage, but seeing where we can find comfort for those of us who might be freshly afflicted. So let's first read through this passage and keep those two themes in mind as we look through it. Start with chapter 13, verses 22 through verse 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, 
Lord. Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's probably not too difficult to see why this passage should be and could be used to afflict the comfortable. As you see in verse 23, somebody, as he's journeying to Jerusalem, says to him, Lord, Who are those who will be saved? Will it be few? Will it be many? Immediately, we should probably start asking a question about the question. Why is this even being asked? Where is this coming from? Is there any context to it? We can read before and after this passage, and some have argued that Jesus has just said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, so it's small. But it will expand and become a tree, and the kingdom of heaven is like a leaven that's in bread, and it starts out little, but then it spreads through the whole bread. And Maybe right after saying those things, Luke wants to put another story about the size and the spreading of the kingdom of God. I think there is reason why these are next to each other. It doesn't seem to be that like somebody heard that teaching and then is responding with a question. It's, it's just Luke's ordered it this way to put these next to each other. So that's one context, the context of Luke. But then there's the context of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish different prominent views of the day that we talked about last week. There's prevailing sources. There's first century documents that we can look through where there's debates among rabbis about how many would be saved. So you can do your research and homework and find that these questions are not rare. They're actually normal, that rabbis would discuss and debate these things. It's not too different if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is being asked about divorce, and there's two prevailing views about divorce. One's real conservative, and one is more liberal, like, yeah, if your wife burns the toast, just divorce her, you know? And they ask Jesus the question because they want to find out which side are you on. So many have argued that that's what's happening here. Which side are you on, Jesus? Are you of the, the kingdom's going to be big? Or is it going to be a smaller group? The, the most prominent view is that Jews believed that they would be saved because they were God's chosen people. That really only a few Gentiles, which is just the word for non-Jews, would get into God's kingdom. 
So it, it seems like Jesus being asked a question, do, do you have that view, Jesus? Do you view that the kingdom is going to be primarily of the Jews, the chosen people, but just a handful of Gentiles, you know, like Ruth, for example, or several stories that you see throughout the Old Testament, where there's just some exceptions, but not whole nations of people coming in. I would say it's probably fair, not only with that background, but then by the way Jesus answers the question, the man asking, or the woman, it just says someone, could be a man or a woman, the person asking is comfortable. They're comfortable in their position from the family they were born in. They're comfortable in their Judaism. They're, they're comfortable in their status before God. And they, they're comfortable with thinking that they're going to be saved. And they're wondering who else is going to be in the kingdom. And what happens when people are comfortable in the Bible and they're asking questions not about themselves, but presuming that they're in, do you know how they're retreated? Let me give you a couple examples. Luke chapter 3. So you don't need to turn there, but just it's the story of John the Baptist, and he's baptizing a bunch of people in the wilderness. Out come a large group of Pharisees and Sadducees. And he immediately does this. He says, You all are a bunch of snakes. Like, well, welcome. Welcome to the baptism. Like, this, this is startling, isn't it? But there's a reason why. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, and notice these words. He says, do not presume to say we have Abraham as our father. Do not say, oh, we've got Abraham as our father, so, so we're good. John the Baptist told them, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And right now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's an example of people who are presuming that because they were born in Abraham's family, Jews, they're good. Do you see how startling and sharp these words are to people in that category? He wants to afflict the comfortable. John chapter 8 is another example of people that think that they have Abraham as their father, and Jesus is talking about how the truth that he has come to bring will set them free. And they say, what do we need freedom for? We've never been enslaved to anybody. We are offspring of Abraham. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you. You do what you have heard from your father. And they said, well, no, no, no. Our father's Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's child, then you would do what Abraham did. You would do the works that he did. But you're seeking to kill me. That is not what Abraham did or would do. Jesus said, if God were your father, then you would love me. Why don't you understand what I am saying? It is because you can't hear my word. Your father is the devil. Like, guys, these are strong words. You snakes. You devils. And these are people who are presuming comfortably that they are in. And as they are confronted with the teaching of John the Baptist or with Jesus about bearing good fruits, 
about repenting and believing in the kingdom of God, the one that Jesus is bringing. These are the people that are getting the strongest, harshest words. So should we be surprised that when we see the response of Jesus in verse 24, that he doesn't say maybe what you'd expect him to. He doesn't really answer the question, it doesn't seem right away. And in fact, the first word that you see in verse 24 is strive. And you can't really see this in the English, but the word strive is written plurally. So it's you all, y'all, strive. If Jesus were from the south, he'd say y'all, strive. But he's from the Middle East, so there's no y'all. But that's, that's what it is. Literally, y'all strive. So why, when one single person asks the question, who will be saved? He then turns to everyone and says, okay, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to tell everyone, you all need to strive. Strive is the word that's going to be helpful for the next two weeks for you to think about this sermon, by the way. It's the word for competing or fighting, used to talk about the Olympic Games back in the days of the Bible. Strive like that, like somebody who's agonizing and fighting and competing. Jesus' first word to this question about who will be saved is to turn to the whole crowd and say, strive, compete. We get our English word agonize from this root word. I want you to agonize and enter through a narrow door. Not a wide door, not a big door, a narrow door. There's one way in, and it's through this narrow door. Why does he want them to strive? Because he wants to explain to them that many. These words, when you start thinking about Each of these words, many, I tell you. Sense the gravity of these words from Jesus. Will few be saved? No, many, many will not be able to enter the house once the master has shut the door. The contrast between the question of few is that many will not be able, not because they can't get in, it's because it's too late. It's once the door has been shut. There is a time for the door to be open. And if they don't go in during that time, then they will be too late. And so there they will stand outside. They will knock on the door and they will say, Lord, in their minds, notice the presumption. They're calling the master Lord. Open up the door to us. He will say, I don't know where you came from. It's just another way of saying, literally it says, I don't know where you came from, but it's just, I don't know who you are. Who are you? Where are you from? And then you will say back, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Have you ever experienced this before? presuming that you thought you were in, only to find out when you got there, oh, it's too late, or I don't know them like I thought I did. 
I think it was maybe three or four years ago. We were living on the north side of the city of Chicago. We had a guy in our church that said that he knew Arlo Guthrie as a personal friend. Do you all know who Arlo Guthrie is? All right, so there's one of you. That's, wow, two of you. So Arlo Guthrie's the son of Woody Guthrie, and he's a singer-songwriter, a folk singer. And he, he's pretty well-known if you like folk music, which is not a lot of you in this room. But needless to say, he, he would be considered in those circles a celebrity. And, and he was doing a concert in Chicago, and the guy in our church told us that he knew Arlo personally. And that there was a concert down the street, and that he was going to get us, like, backstage passes. So I was like, cool. And he was telling us all these stories about how Woody Guthrie is like his godfather and how he was, he was uh, babysat by Bob Dylan and all kinds. I was like, wow, like you've got some connections. Your babysitter was Bob Dylan? Like, cool. And so we're listening to all his stories. And then we go to the concert and I bring all my kids with me because I'm thinking this is going to be cool. Everything he was describing was like they're tight and close. And we get there, and I tell you something. This friend of mine knew who Arlo Guthrie was, but Arlo Guthrie did not really know this friend. <laughs> so he could tell me on the way there all about his life and about the concerts and all kinds of things that he had experienced about Arlo, way more. And I, like, fact-checked him. I'm, like, sitting in the car, and I'm, like, Googling things. I'm like, that's true. Wow, he knows what he's talking about. We're probably going to see backstage passes at the Arlo Guthrie concert. And there Arlo walks by and he shakes his hand like he's just another guy in the crowd. No backstage passes. There we were standing in front of everybody like, oh, so what do we do now? I mean, we didn't even get tickets to the concert. Like, talk about being outsiders looking in. Now, I wasn't that upset because part of me was a little skeptical and wondering, like, was this going to really work out? I wasn't gnashing my teeth, and I wasn't begging and knocking and trying to break down doors. But in that moment, I realized there's a very important lesson. It doesn't matter how much you think you know somebody. The more important question is, do they know you? So it is with the kingdom of God. There will be many who say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I don't know you. Depart from me. Paul, in his epistles, it says at one point, uh, the key is to know God. And then he says, no, better yet, to be known by God. Is there any sense to which you're sitting here today and you'd say, I don't just know things about God, but I feel confident that God knows me. He loves me. We're friends. And I'm not going to be shut out. Friends, these are sobering questions, and they're more particularly applied to you today if you are presuming, if you feel comfortable in your current status. I think it's really important for any of you that are here and you grew up in the church, which if you were here earlier this morning, we had a breakfast hour, encouraging to hear testimonies and updates. We got to hear the testimony of Samuel Jindoy, and he said, I grew up in the, the church. He says, how many of you did? And almost all of you raised your hands. A lot of you did. This is particularly a danger for those of us who grow up in the church. This is a danger for some of you parents who are trying to raise children in the church. Are you going to quickly assume that just because they say they love Jesus, that they will pers persevere and strive the rest of their life toward the kingdom of God? 
Or is salvation something that happens just quick with a few words? Just pray a prayer, get baptized, say a few lines, repeat after me, and boom, you're in the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't sound like what Jesus is saying here, does it? I'm not trying to give you the indication that this means that we have to work for our salvation, but I am trying to clarify that for some of us that presume because we were born in Christian families that, well, then I must be a Christian. Jesus says all must be born again. Even those who are born into Christian families must be born again. So all of us who are genuine Christians are what are called converted Christians. All people who are true Christians come to a point of conversion, meaning there was a a point in time where there was things about God, things about themselves, things about the world that they thought, and then they changed their mind about them and turned to Jesus and Him alone. Is that you today? Would you call yourself a converted Christian who has put their faith in Jesus alone for the salvation of their sins? Or are you presuming? Are you too comfortable today? There are some of us that might be too comfortable and there might be some of us that will take these words and afflict themselves unnecessarily. And I'm hoping by the end of this message you will know who you are. But there's many things that we have done throughout the recent history of American churches to baptize children early, to make statements that, well, you're saved because you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you repeated after me. These things might lead people to presume that they are doing good before God when in actuality they're living like devils, workers of evil. That's who this passage is addressed to. So, for example, some of us might be here and presume upon God's forgiveness and say, you know, I know I'm living in unrepentant sin. I know that I keep doing things repeatedly again and again that are sinful. I get convicted about them, but I just presume God will forgive me. Friend, if that's your attitude today, whether you were born in a Christian family or not, if that's you today, this is addressed to you. You would be a worker of evil that is presuming upon God's forgiveness and His grace and not realizing that there is a time where the door will be shut and God will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. You might have thought you knew me. You might have thought, well, we ate together and I heard your teaching and I attended church and I gave and I served. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 7, some people even prophesied in His name and performed miracles. It doesn't matter what you think you're doing for God. Do you know God and does he know you? These are sobering words that I think we need to hear. Part of me as I was working through them, I was like, man, we should have got to a different encouraging meal, a happier one. Let's go back to the wedding at Cana. The most important question in the world is not, are there going to be few that are saved? But for you to answer, are you going to be saved? I think there's a sense to which that's what Jesus is doing by not directly, immediately answering his question and saying, well, let me give you the doctrine about how many will be saved. In fact, I've counted them all up because I'm the eternal God of the universe, and here this is how many will be saved. But instead, he wants them to think about whether they will be saved. And so you and I should also be thinking that same thing. Am I going to be saved? Stop thinking about who else is in the world. In question, you need to ask Will you be those that are in at the feast? 
or you be those like in verse 28 that are in that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see everyone else in, but you are out. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God are in, but you are cast out. People coming from the east, the west, the north, the south, reclining at the table of the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. And it's important, again, that we don't unnecessarily afflict ourselves. One of the ways you could do that is by taking this out of its Jewish context. Now notice, he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets are eating in this meal. And those of you are cast out. The idea is that they would have thought of themselves in of the Jewish family. And when they see the Jewish patriarchs and the Jewish heroes and the prophets in, and they're not in that group, he's showing them that they are out because they have rejected the last and final prophet, Jesus Christ. Some of the words in John chapter 8 Jesus speaks the words of truth that bring freedom and set people free, but they want nothing to do with those words. So you and I would be applied to this situation if we reject the words of Jesus, or we reject them in such a way where we live like we can, do whatever we want, and oh yeah, Jesus sinned, his his blood forgives and wipes away all our sin. That would be living like you want nothing to do with Jesus' words. Therefore, Jesus talks about casting out. The idea here is casting out the people who were in, the Jews who were in his covenant community and kingdom. They're they're being sent out. This is one of the reasons, by the way, if you want to mark this down or put a little note by it, why Embassy Church cares a lot about church membership. Why we do think that the Bible teaches church discipline. Church discipline is called excommunication. You kick people out, if you want to put it very layman term-like. And what we do is not kick people out because, well, look at us. We're so great and righteous and wonderful. No, what we're doing is trying to help afflict those who are comfortable. That's what church discipline essentially is. It's saying some people participate in the church week after week. They come to church. They serve. They give. They act like, talk like they're Christians. And then you find out that they've had deep, dark secrets and they've been living in all kinds of rebellious sin, especially blatant external sins, not just, well, I've got pride in my heart and I'm a little jealous here or there. No, they've been sleeping around with all kinds of different people that aren't their spouse. They've been cheating like crazy on people with money and external actions that aren't at all what you'd call a Christian. And these people, as we try and afflict them by calling them gently to repentance, choose, no, I can live however I want. Jesus will forgive me. One of the last and final steps we could do is to say, in the same way that Jesus will one day kick you out, we want you to know that church membership is for those who are repenters, plural. Not a one-time repenter. Church members are those who recognize that we are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it every day. Prone to leave the God I love. Therefore, I repent daily of my need for God's grace and forgiveness. I'm humble. I'm not proud. Our hope would be that church discipline and membership would be used as an act of love to wake people up from their spiritual slumbers, to help them stop presuming upon God's grace, 
and help them see the goodness of God's mercy. Now, I wonder if at this point some of you are drowning in affliction, like, oh my gosh, this is so downer kind of sermon. Maybe you just have questions like, why does Jesus say strive? I thought salvation was all about God's grace. Maybe you have doubts like, is really there only one narrow door to the kingdom of God? Are we that exclusive? Does Jesus teach that he's the only way to God? Maybe you think this is too judgmental. The narrow door is just too narrow-minded. There's a lot of different things that could be afflicting your mind, so let's turn to comforting the afflicted. I think what we need to consider here is that the Bible needs to say one thing at a time. So from this teaching, realize that the context seems to be that someone asks a question, and by Jesus' response, I think it's fair to say that they've presumed upon their offspring of Abraham descendants thinking that they're good with God. They are workers of evil. They are people who are saying one thing with their mouths, but their hearts are far from God. They're people that are living as hypocrites. That's who this passage is addressed to. So let's let it address those people in its full weight. And if that's you, then you need to hear this word for you. My guess, though, is that there's a lot of you that are not in that situation. And you could do a lot of damage by applying this to your life and thinking, oh, man, am I striving hard enough? I thought salvation was by grace, and, man, I, I talked mean to my kids, or I'm not as good as somebody else, and comparing and contrasting ourselves with other people in this room and thinking, I'm just not good enough. I want to comfort the skeptics of us, those of you that are questioning the inclusivity of Jesus or the exclusivity. And I want to ask all of us, are we as inclusive as Jesus is in this passage? I think we could find great comfort by realizing that Jesus says that there's a narrow door, but do you realize that this door stays open for a long, long time? This is a narrow door, but do you realize that Jesus invites everyone to come in? Do you understand that he invites his enemies to come into this narrow door? Do you realize that Jesus invites criminals and prostitutes, gang leaders, thieves, robbers, you name it? My guess is that you're not that inclusive in your own house. But Jesus is. So before you get all high and mighty and say that Jesus is so exclusive, realize how incredibly inclusive he is by who he invites and how long he holds the door open. But realize Hebrews chapter 9 is going to say that we all live once and after that face judgment. There is a day when the door will shut. There is an urgency to responding to the gospel. It's not a put off and see you later sort of message. I'll figure that out later when I have time. The gospel demands an immediate response. And so for you, if you're a skeptic, we ask today here at Embassy Church, would you consider the claims of Christianity and realize that maybe this passage is not addressed to you because you're not a hypocrite, you're not, you're not claiming to be a Christian. Skeptics normally aren't claiming to be Christians. They don't like Christianity. A better image for you is the one of the mountain. I've heard this many a times in evangelistic conversations. Have you ever heard someone say, God is like the peak of Mount Everest, the tallest point. He's up high and far off and lofty. But don't you realize, Christians, that there's a lot of different ways to climb up that mountain? It's a big mountain. So the Jews have found a way. And the Muslims have found a way. 
and so have the Hindus, and so on and so forth. Christians, you guys have just one way up the mountain. Stop saying that your Jesus way is the only way up. In that moment, I normally respond and say, no, friend, you're misunderstanding the claims of Christianity altogether. never, Never at one point does Christianity claim to be just another way up the mountain. See, this striving here is for people who are presuming for people who are not presuming, for people who are non-Christians or skeptics, the message of Christianity is that the God on top of the mountain came down. He doesn't stand on top and say, oh, climb up. Work hard and climb up yourself. No, no, the door is at the bottom of the mountain. The door's at the bottom and says, hey, climb through this door and get on my back. I will carry you up the mountain myself. That's the door to the kingdom of God. It's not striving in such a way that you're going to, with your own moral efforts, make it up the mountain yourself, and it's just another moral code for being good, and that God would be pleased with you, and then you make it to the top, and ah, you've arrived. That would just be another way up the mountain, but Christianity is so ridiculously counterculture, so different than all these other religious faiths. Tell me one faith that says the God on top of the mountain came down and says, the problem is way worse than you had ever imagined. Your legs are broken. Your eyes are blind. You're sick with sin. In fact, you're dead. You want to climb the mountain being blind, broken limbs, and dead? How's that going to work for you? But praise be to God, the God on top of the mountain comes down and resurrects dead people to new life. He takes lame people that can't walk and gives them limbs to walk. He gives them new hearts. He opens their eyes. He opens their ears. He makes new creation. And once those people are made new, he tells them to strive. You see the difference? If we wrongly apply this, I think we will start to afflict people that don't need to be afflicted. Find comfort this morning in Jesus being the only way up the mountain because he's the only God who came down. Secondly, I want us to find comfort for those of you that are struggling. Maybe you're not a skeptic and struggling with questions about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, but you're someone here that's struggling in sin, and you're wondering whether or not you are a worker of evil and whether or not you are going to be cast out And I think that this word, like I said earlier, should do its due justice to those of us who are in that category. But I think we also need to see in this passage that Jesus' answer is full of amazing comfort. The original question was what? Are few going to be saved? He never pauses in this paragraph. So immediately he says, strive. And immediately he starts talking to people who presume. But ultimately, I think he answers the question. Will few be saved? No. There will be many who are saved from the east and the west, from the north and the south, from the whole wide world. The first will be last and the last will be first, meaning the Gentiles, those who are outside. The first is referring to the Jewish ethnic people that God first came and chose. But through that people, God would preach his gospel to all nations so that all peoples from everywhere would come and be invited in. 
Salvation is exclusively found in a narrow door through Jesus alone, but salvation is inclusive to every person on the whole face of the world. North and south, east and west. Do you realize that this prophetic words of Jesus is being fulfilled by our gathering right here today? How many of us are from Jewish descent? Not many? Not most? A few? But here we are. In just a few moments, we'll take the bread and the cup as a foretaste of this feast that Jesus has invited us to. That bread and cup will be given to all of these mostly non-Jewish Gentile people for whom Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. As a church, we should be known for our inclusiveness to all kinds of people. All ethnicities should be welcome and encouraged to come and worship here. This is not a church for white people or black people, Asian people or Hispanics. This is not a church for rich people or poor people. This is not a church for males or females to prioritize one over the other. This is not a church where we are afraid to extend invitations to people who have struggles with heterosexuality or homosexual sins. All sins of all different sexual orientations should be embraced in terms of encouraging them to find their hope in Jesus and Him alone. We should be incredibly inclusive to Republicans and Democrats and on and on you could go. There's an inclusiveness to these words that through Jesus alone, hope and freedom, salvation and joy can be found for all types of people. It's for all. There's just one simple requirement. It's to feel your need of him. If you're not heavy laden and burdened, then when he says, come, all who are heavy laden and burdened, then you won't come. When he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Well, if you're not thirsty, if you're spiritually full and your thirst is quenched, well, then that invitation's not for you. Come, all who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk and money. Without money, without price, come. If you're spiritually rich, full of yourself, well, then you don't need to come. But if you feel your need of spiritual bankruptcy, then come. He invites all. He includes all. There is a wideness to the call through this narrow door. Only through Jesus, but all through Jesus. I was reminded of the old hymn. I don't even think we've ever sung it. The, the actual music is, is rather challenging to sing, so we may never sing it with these music. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus is ready and stands to save you, full of pity and joined with power. And then normally, the song version some people are familiar with is, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. But the older version says, he is able. He is able. He is willing, so doubt no more. Come, ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. 
true belief and true repentance and every grace that brings you nigh. Without any money, without money, come to Jesus. Come and buy. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous. Not the righteous. Only sinners Jesus came to call. That's a good hymn, isn't it? Maybe one day we'll find good music and sing it. But instead, we're going to sing two songs about our hope is found in Christ alone, our cornerstone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank